Welcome to HR Unpacked, a podcast about HR workplace issues, where we analyse and then discuss the latest developments in HR and employment law that impact both employers and employees. Each episode, we unpack the latest legislation and regulations to provide practical guidance on how to tackle the HR issues that are affecting the world of work. Welcome, Kate. Hi there, Jonathan. Good to be here um, on this next podcast in our series. So today um, we'll be looking at quiet quitting and we're delighted to welcome Dr. Ashley Weinberg, who is a senior lecturer at the University of Salford, as well as a chartered psychologist. So welcome, Ashley. Uh, Hi, Kate. Thank you very much indeed. Hi, Jonathan. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me along. No, thank you for joining us. I'm, I'm going to set the bar here, no pressure, but you've got 20 years experience in lecturing, researching and consultancy work and also having produced four books on well-being. So we're really privileged to have you with us today, Ashley. Thanks for your time. Gosh, you're, you're, you're very kind. It, 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 I wonder if any of that's true, but no, it, it does. <laughs> that sounded good. I'll go with it. No, thank you, Kate. Go with it. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Ashley. OK, so quite quitting then, it, it comes really from the... Um, out of the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. And it really caused employees to really imagine what work could look like. And it can be aligned to things like um, remote working and the great resignation, which I know we've we've discussed before on previous podcasts. But the notion of quite quitting, I believe, has been around for centuries in the form of working to rule. But it's been become really, really contemporary in terms of a trend with Generation Z workers because of social media, because of TikTok. And now, um, especially the Generation Z workers are really encouraged to do the bare minimum at work. They're still doing the job, but they're doing the bare minimum at work in order to avoid burnout and to really recalibrate what's important to them after the COVID-19 pandemic. For millions of workers um, working from home during um, lockdown, still have some level of flexibility through hybrid working and flexible working. But it's really caused a problem um, in terms of staff shortages within certain sectors and industries as well. And research suggests that um, the pandemic really hit young people, especially um, with motivation, with 51% of them saying that um, it it had actually decreased importance placed on their career. So quite quitting, um, although it's a new kind of uh, notion, it's been around for a while. But what we're going to get into into the discussion today um, with Kate and Ashley is around the impact of quiet quitting on the current generation. Thanks, Jonathan. I, th- I think for me to, to start off with, I think you're absolutely right. Obviously, the the term, the phrase has become really prevalent over recent months and, and it, it features highly in publications like People Management, you know, HR's own articles, lo- loads of different outlets are talking about quiet quitting. But you, you state that, that the obvious really that that it hasn't it isn't a new term generated via TikTok. It, it's a term. It's a, a thing that's been around for, for for forever, really, as long as there's been employees in a workplace. And you know, the way I see it, and the, and the way I've compartmentalized it, is it, it's about kind of mentally and emotionally being uninvested in in work, detaching yourself from that, and then the behaviours that brings towards work. Now, the thing I've seen, and certainly along, even in my team here, is um, when we're talking about it as a concept in our regular training sessions and, and, and updates, etc., it's really contentious. So it's, it can be really divisive, divisive. Some people have got a really strong opinion that quiet quitting is a disgrace. You don't quiet quit at work. You, you absolutely have to put your all into it. You work extra hours as required. You, you're innovative. You're creative, etc., 
Whereas the other end of the spectrum is some people are saying, well, what is actually wrong with someone working to their terms and conditions, the agreement that's in place between employer and employee? And I've seen real contention between different parties and their views on quiet quitting. So I don't know, Ashley, whether that's something you've seen or anything you've observed around that. I feel like it's quite a divisive concept um, from what I've seen at my end. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I mean, from a, a work psychology perspective, I'm quite used to talking uh, with students and colleagues and, and organisations about the psychological contract, that sort of set of unwritten expectations that exist between you as the employee and, and the employer and vice versa. It works both ways. And actually, you could extend that to pretty much any kind of relationship, you know, things yeah. that we perhaps don't talk about, you know, we, we sort of take for granted or or we kind of develop over time as that relationship grows. and. Perhaps again, like other kinds of relationship, maybe, you know, every day we kind of do a quick reassessment, a bit of a sense check. Is, is this is this right for me? Does this feel fair? Um, is it working for everybody? And I think we're really attuned to that kind of thing. Um, perhaps not so much in a in intending to be divisive, but initially from a almost harking back to our survivalist instincts you know it, 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 is this going to do me any good in the long term um we've always got an eye on that i think haven't we um that, that kind of thing so i i wonder whether it's a bit of a natural process that goes on i, I don't know how that, that fits with your thinking of it i think you're right i think you forget sometimes that you know an employer and employee are in a relationship and it's not always a high <laughs> You know, you, you have your lows, don't you? And you have your days when, as you said there, Ashley, you're thinking, is this right for me? Um, what do I need to do to put a bit more effort in? I just literally, I'll, 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 I'll be honest with you, talking about relationships, I text my husband this morning to say, I'm sorry, I've been a bit moany for the past few days. <laughs> and I've reset my thinking and I'm going to put a bit more effort in. You know, it's the same with a working relationship, isn't it? You have your highs, you have your lows. And I think the human in this is so important. You know, if you, if you, at work with a colleague and you can see that they're having a low, talk to them. You know, there's nothing complex or scientific in that. Ask them what's wrong. Ask them how they're feeling. Show them you care and try and get under the skin of what may be leading to their disengagement or quiet quitting, as it could be known in this case. You know, why have they suddenly gone from a really involved, innovative staff member to someone that's seems distant and is just putting in what they have to put in because that's a that's a red flag that something is going wrong and it could be for me the party side um that's that's my view it's like as you said Ashley it's like any other relationship where it's not always going to be singing and dancing and you have to adapt and be agile to one another yeah yeah I, I agree and I think you're right that communication is the heart of what makes that better what what makes it worse as well i mean i i, I admire your example there kate i i, I wish, yeah, I, wish I had you. the guts to send a text like that so no no i take my hat off to you um and, but but yeah that, i mean that shows as well that the various parties involved you know in, in this kind of relationship will bring their own uh emotional as well as cognitive states to this situation won't they um yeah. and, and some days we're up some days we're down but in a job situation those days can easily turn into weeks and months and and then you're into sort of problem territory aren't you i think for that relationship one thing that concerns me slightly is the economic backdrop that we're in you know the the great resignation there's another hr term has, has, has been in flight 
you know, for the past year, maybe, um, maybe in some industries, not others, but in some industries, the job market is contracting a little bit. And then you get a situation where people may want to move on and want to change things in their life, but they're concerned to change roles and they're in a role that they feel stuck in, really, because they're fearful of moving on. And I think that can be really dangerous territory for both employer and employee. If someone is in a role they don't really want to be in, but they feel trapped because of what's going on with external factors, I think that's a really difficult situation to deal with. Um, but I think one that will probably be more become more common in the in in the coming months, just because of all what's going on politically, socially, and economically. So I don't know what your view is on that, Jonathan. Where that that feeling of wanting to spread rings and sometimes attrition is positive sometimes you know but people feeling trapped yeah and hopefully Ashley can build upon this I I, I agree I think it's 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 a different mindset now in particular with younger workers I've noticed it with students and when we do employability skills with them it, you can see that they, they, they don't want to be restricted to one job for the rest of their life in one company which you know that used to happen they want to do different not only work for different companies but they want to do different jobs as well and they don't want to be tied down they want to work differently so you're seeing that you know the, with the gig economy people are being employed in different ways on zero hours contracts where they can have multiple contracts and they're picking and choosing where they work and it's very difficult for employers to really attract the right talent for their um, organization the high performing talent as well because they've got such a, a freedom now to move and because of the staff shortages, because of Brexit and all the other things that have gone on over the last few years, the power really is with the employee at the moment, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it is causing problems um, for companies and for, for managers in terms of recruitment. But Ashley, we mentioned at the start of the podcast around Generation Z. Do you think that quite quitting is more applicable to that generation? And, and you've mentioned this thing around survival instinct and the psychological contract. What do you think it is? around Generation Z really pick, picking up on quiet quitting? I think it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, I, I think just going back to what you were saying a little earlier there, that, that, you know, the psychological contract, our expectations have changed. Um, you know, if you were to go back 50 years, 20 years, the job for life has kind of gone, you know, and people's desire to do it has, has, has changed quite dramatically as well. So I think with, with kind of where people are at, you know, in the last sort of 10 years and looking forward, I think we are very much in a in a situation where people want to have choice. They want to have an enhanced level of control over what they do with their their working lives, um, and not just life while they're at work, but that period of life while they are also working. If I can distinguish between the two, because the idea that you know we would work very long hours, um, and if we were we still had enough energy, then we we fit other things in around it. Um, it's not sustainable. And that's no coincidence. We've seen an increase in level of stress and psychological distress at work. But I think the, the recognition amongst Generation Z is that kind of, well, there's more to life. Um, you know, work's going to be one of the considerations. Having said that, that's for the fortunate amongst Generation Z. And I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that the opportunities are, are not evenly spread in society um, and even within occupational groups sometimes. So you know, that there's a lot of work and progress to be made there. But where people do have a sense of choice, um, 
I think they wanted to, to establish that quite firmly. Um, and that sometimes includes a rejection of what's gone before. That's kind of the evolution of our species, isn't it? You know, and uh, I, I'm sure for those who are big fans of Marx and uh, Engels, of the idea that we have, uh, you know, an idea, then the opposite of that idea. And finally, out of this comes something new. That's very much the story of human progress, I think. So I, I agree. I, it, it wouldn't be any different in the world of work. Why, why would it be? Um, you know, and at the end of the day, we're looking for the best deal. When I think of, for example, Generation Z, as we talk in there, and I think about the approach of, of bringing it right down again, the, the approach of my, my father and their generation at work, there's a real dichotomy between how one views one should behave in the workplace and sometimes I see that dealing with SMEs. I see that fight, that conflict between different approaches and attitudes to the workplace. And those two not really coming together well because they're so different and, and, and so at odds with one another. Have, have you seen that, Ashley? And, and how how would you advise, um, advise employers to, to deal with that, bringing the generations together so there's like a a middle ground of, of how to work with one another and be compatible? Um, I, I think that's a really good question and probably comes back to communication again, really. I think that that sense in which workers in the organisation, whether they're in senior management or on the front line or, or both, um, to have that space to come together is something that I think has been diminished over uh, many years. We're, we're we seem to be in the territory of very hierarchical organisations um, within work where senior managers and the front line don't necessarily come into contact. And that's a bad thing for the organisation strategically, as well as for the, the welfare and the rights of individuals working in them. Um, and so I think creating a space where you can have that kind of forum for discussion. Um, there used to be a, a BBC programme years ago, didn't there? Back to the floor. Where you'd see, do you remember the chief exec or the MD would go, you know, and actually be in the workspace there, or you know, they'd be hiding out in the in the warehouse, and no one would know that actually this was the the senior person of the organisation because no one had ever seen them. Um, and, and that disconnect is a real issue. So I think okay, that's one way in which organisations can try and address this issue. Um, because you're right, it, people's views have changed, but while we're very hierarchical, perhaps in work. The impact of social media has really flattened the, the the lines of communication, certainly outside of work as well. Um, and so, you know, obviously it's the, the newer generations who've embraced that. This is different for those of us who sort of got used to it and, and weren't even brought up when this kind of thing was around. So immediately there's different styles of thinking being brought to the situation that makes work part of the rest of life rather than the point of our lives, which perhaps would have been the case in past generations. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think that, that not being the point of our life, I think it was one of your colleagues, Jonathan, who, who presented at one of our events, and they talked about um, Generation Z looking at how hard the parents worked and thinking it was somewhat ridiculous mm -hmm. because there is absolutely more to, to life than working you know getting in the office at eight in the morning and, and leaving at seven at night and you know there's a lot to be there's a lot of truth in that isn't there <laughs> there is more to life so um yeah it, it's in, it's interesting you say that that work is not the point of life I think that's a really good point. Ashley you mentioned occupational groups before as well are you aware of which occupational groups are 
seeing this trend of quiet quitting and obviously the ones that aren't seeing it is there, is there a clear distinction in the occupational groups with this um i, I the, my my honest answer is i don't know for sure i i could certainly have a hazard a guess um and i think where you've got service sector um occupations so you know if you're in an office-based kind of job um and perhaps where you've got the flexibility to um you, you know we're all very good at portraying a particular image of what we do in our in our work. Uh, I think in the service sector, there's a bit more space for that. Unless, of course, you're in the front line where you're being observed all the time. Um, but if you're in manufacturing, I, I don't think you have much choice. You know, you, you, you kind of you're judged by how much output um, you're producing. And, and there's nowhere to sort of, well, renegotiate that psychological contract very easily while you're actually on the you know the the, the conveyor belt there or the front line you know manufacturing things so i'm guessing that this is perhaps more of a phenomenon that would be experienced in the service sector um and in perhaps professional occupations where there may be the space to kind of have some choice now in saying that i realize there's controversy there because people are going well you know i'm a social worker or i'm a, a lawyer or whatever i don't i don't have much choice but actually, when you've got a set of skills that you could, you know, more easily transfer to other sectors, then there's a, there's a certain amount of privilege there that we get within the workplace that allows people to renegotiate that, that psychological contract and think, well, actually, no, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to go somewhere else. Um, so, you know, whilst there are a lot of difficulties there and it'll be a lot of exceptions, that would be my general premise. Um, and I think because, you know, we're, We've seen quiet quitting as a relatively recent trend in terms of how it's named. I think what we'll see is sort of more research coming out in the coming months and years that identify this more clearly by occupational group. But earlier, Jonathan, you were saying, well, actually, this isn't that newer concept. Um, you know, it, it is the opposite of or, or one opposite of what we used to call worker engagement, which has been around as a, as a concept for, you know, 20 years or so. Um, you know, and, and that idea of, um, from a psychological perspective, having enthusiasm, commitment, um, and feeling really absorbed in what you do, were seen as good hallmarks of a, a psychologically engaging job or workplace. So another question we have, I think, is kind of, well, how much of those three things is being offered by the work we do? And that will, again, vary by occupational group but also the personality we bring to work as well. We're, we're all different, aren't we, in terms of how we approach our jobs. And uh, obviously I love mine and I'm very lucky to be able to do it. He said, looking around just in case. <laughs> One thing I've seen here at Peninsula with our clients is a lot of clients resizing, stripping back, making redundancies, sadly, making efficiencies and, you know, kind of mutating two jobs into one and so forth. And, and my observation of that is that could be a real danger because there are people who are then doing two jobs instead of one. The, the expectations of, of delivery and what good looks like in terms of that, in terms of their delivery, is really high and exhausting. And they can't do it. So the, the, the natural reaction to that is no matter what I do, it's not good enough. And that leads into quiet quitting. So it's ironically mutating into a bit of conflict between an employer and employer. And sometimes misconduct, we're seeing a lot of misconduct issues in the workplace at the minute. Disciplinaries, uh, our themes and trends are seeing a spike in disciplinaries. And I wonder if it's because there's this kind of that pulling back, the, that efficiency making, which is leading to 
overwork in some scenarios, unrealism in what you have to deliver, and ultimately disengagement. There's just something I've seen at this end in terms of how efficiencies and the economic climate is having an impact on the behaviour in in work. I was just going to try and build upon that. The CIPD did a big um, piece of research. It came out the end of last year, and they found that the the surveyed their members about working from home, and those that were allowing their staff members to work from home, a third, roughly a third of those who are working from home, there was no increase or decrease in productivity. Another third, there was an increase in productivity. So what they were effectively saying is that two thirds of the staff members who were working from home were either performing at the same level or were performing better. And if organisations are now having or wanting their staff to come back into the workplace, are staff members, do you think, resisting that and, and thinking, well, actually, I've worked from home and I've been productive. There's been no real detriment to the company. And now companies are forcing employees to come back into the workplace because of the bigger picture side of it. Do you think that has led Ashley into things like Kate has mentioned as well, into disciplinaries and, and discontent with you in the workplace? I, I think, yeah, that this kind of shift that we've seen um, and whilst the move towards flexible working, certainly in the UK, for which, you know, we're entitled to request by by law, has had the real accelerator pedal pushed down with, with the pandemic. And so as we're moving into a situation where people have been physically back, uh, back together, then naturally there's a readjustment phase and that renegotiation again of the psychological contract, because it wasn't really written down anywhere too too harshly in terms of or prescriptively i should say um in terms of where you work and, and what you what you will do um that requires a quite a bit of adjustment and i think we may have underestimated as organizations and as individuals the period of time it will take for people to settle into what might be called a, a new routine um but so those strategies there and, and this idea of disciplinaries and people falling foul of things um, my mind goes back to someone who's done quite a bit of work for the CIPD, which is uh, David Guest. Um, and for those who are listening and, re- and remember Northwest Tonight uh, and Dave Guest's report, this is a different Dave Guest, but uh, that's just by the by. Um, but he his work for CIPD um, and going back on the psychological contract goes back over 25 years to a book um, which he co-wrote called, uh, called The New Deal, looking at the psychological contract. And out of that, there was a mantra that stuck with me, which is, um, you know, if you don't like what you see, get out, get safe, or get even. Um, and, and that leads to a whole kind of, um, you know, plethora of kind of potential behaviours that we might see in the workplace, some of which mean the worker is perhaps feeling things are not fair, or they're feeling that their their, their unwritten understanding has been violated in some kind of way. Therefore, I'm going to do something that may not fit with what the organization wants or i'm going to do my own thing regardless and naturally there's going to be conflict with the organization who's going to go hang on (laughs) that's not the way we do things around here but you know even if we haven't told you so i I think that idea of people renegotiating is also organizations perhaps underestimating that period of adjustment that needs to go on but also that reassessment we've all made as individuals what do i want to do with my life while i'm working you know, um, and, and that sort of, you know, option to, to leave, to get out or to make yourself indispensable, to get even um, 
sorry, to, 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 to get safe. And then finally, you've got the, the getting even bit, which is, I think, where you see, you know, a lot of that conflict and friction. Um, and it, it, it's sad to hear people falling foul of things here. But, you know, it just requires a bit more understanding, I think, as organizations before we, we run in and, you know, tell people off, so to speak. But uh, obviously it can end quite sadly. Yeah, I do think that the whole the safe point and, and kind of the social safety net and feeling like your businesses care is, is so critical for me. You know, we've done a lot of work just about about how leaders have had to adapt, quite honestly, over COVID. You know, how how the language is so important, the words they choose, the environment they create, that, that feeling of care and safety at work for me, is absolutely fundamental because things are quite volatile out there. Let, let's not, you know, they are. So you, you you need to be in a place where your leaders are not just process-driven, so emotionally intelligent. As, as, you know, and that's difficult for some because some can be more process-inclined, but emotionally intelligent and attuned to their team and the people and the individuals in it. For me, it's never been more fundamental. And, and when I'm looking for, when businesses are looking for leaders, if anything, that should play more a part than the, the methodical and process-driven side of the brain, because that's going to keep and engage staff and take the business forward. Thanks, Kate. So in terms of the kind of practical ways of handling this thing, because I mentioned at the very start again that with working to rule, as, as I see quite quitting is this new concept, with working to rule, it's very kind of open. It's an industrial action. Companies know when the time period is that the, the staff members potentially will be working to rule. Quite quitting is very um, kind of in the shadows, in the background. It's very, very difficult to manage. So I'll come to you first, Kate, and then, and then obviously Ashley. Uh, how are Peninsula, and you've intimated this, but how are Peninsula advising their clients on how to really tackle it in terms of the practical side of how line managers can deal with this, with this issue? Because it's not really something which is quite blatant it's you know very subversive and something which you know is is not tangible to them how how are line managers being advised to deal with it yeah i mean nothing nothing new really jonathan i think importantly every employee should be shown that they cared for should be treated as an individual and should know how they contribute to the wider broader business strategy you know allowing them to have autonomy and control within that and and, and in doing so, feeling psychologically safe, you know, if they make a mistake, no blame culture, you know, that's a learning point, etc. Um, so, so that feeling of we've all got each other's back, it, I think, is really important. Un underpinning that, you know, HR policies and, and, and other policies that, that recognise people as individuals, you know, human beings with individual problems. There's, there's lots going on out there at the minute, you know. Unfortunately, mental health, cost of living pressures, um, all sorts of, you know, even things like rail strikes so people can't get into work or childcare issues, you know, bespoke in your approach per individual and having meaningful conversations that are attuned, attuned to those. I think also, you know, the point that I made earlier about re refining structures, resizing, making efficiencies, really, whilst the bottom line is, key for every business of course it is that, that that's a fundamental aspect of a business making a profit you know if it's a if it's a, a profit making organization the budgets the commercials etc all that is so important but at the end of the day you also need staff that can meet the expectations that you're setting and if those are too high unrealistic 
you're going to get a disengaged workforce because they'll never be able to do what you're asking them. And you're going to get quiet quitters. You're going to get high attrition. Um, and if you are getting that, understand the why. Exit interviews, conversations, knowing your people. I think all those are, are, are really key. I mean, there's loads of peripheral things, Jonathan, you can do to engage staff, isn't there? You know, things like, you know, today we, 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 we're launching a new benefit called, called MediCash deductions and support on like eye tests and all these kinds of things. But they're all peripherals for me. They're great and they add value for an employee. But knowing them, understanding them and being attuned to how they're feeling for me is, abs- is, is the main thing. Thanks, Kate. So, Ashley, what, what's your perspective in terms of, of the support that's required? Because Kate's outlined some really, really practical um, advice there. And I, I agree, you know, there is the peripheral things that you can do, which are, you know, are excellent. But, you know, you have to get to the heart and, and the root cause of the problem. How do you think companies can really tackle this issue so it doesn't manifest well, into a permanent yeah. problem? Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with everything that, that, that Kate said there and proposed. And uh, t- to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure how much I, I, I would add to it because I think, you know, unless you know your, your workforce, unless you take the time and make the effort to get to know them, then you can't be surprised if they're they're not engaged or not doing what you want. Um, so, you know, it, if it's seen as a nice to have to, to be emotionally intelligent with one staff, it's not. It's an essential. And if you look at the most successful organizations and you look at some of the case studies from, you know, Engage for Success by Clark and McLeod, for example, they, they show very clearly, you know, that you engage staff and guess what? They do produce more. They are more satisfied and they will enhance the reputation of your company or your organization. But I think in terms of the individuals and the, and the workers there, I mean, I, I asked a group of students um, in my occupational psychology class that I, I hold at University of Salford in. I said, what, what is it you'd like? What would you like to see in your psychological contract? Um, and it was very often, it was the practical things that made a difference. So, you know, uh, some of the stuff which perhaps some employers already recognize, or perhaps they should, um, you know, that I could be paid for my lunch hour. You know, wh- where does my employer think I'm going to go in that hour? I haven't got anywhere else to go. Pay me for that time, please. You know, um, it, if I'm from a minoritized group and I have a religious holiday, please recognize that. Um, that perhaps there are days which are given that help people with their mental health, you know, and their well-being. It, not necessarily one having to have a diagnosis, but just have some well-being days or some well-being time that shows as an organization, as an employer, that you care. And, and that seems to make a big difference. And you're right, in terms of the, 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 the money situation we're seeing right now, assistance with travel where possible might be something that's helpful. Um, and another thing as well is that it comes down to, I think Kate's point about the individual and knowing your staff. And something that we don't recognize uh, anywhere near enough in the workplace these days is neurodiversity. And the idea that, you know, perhaps someone's um, experiences of dyslexia, dyspraxia, uh, attention deficit, or even being on on an autistic spectrum in some kind of way, is something that affects a a lot of people. It didn't just happen at school and suddenly end when they left. You know, this is still the person you find in the workplace. and means they've got tremendous strength in some areas, but also they need that bit of extra support in other areas. So it's a case of, I think, really getting to know the individual and and making sure that you can put in place uh, support mechanisms, um, the kind of screening that will be helpful to them and not used for any punitive measures, of course. So 
I think lots of things there again that sort of speak to the psychological psychological contract and that unwritten set of expectations. I'm making sure that staff feel valued, respected, and the one that came out particularly when I asked my students this year and last year the same question, um, treated fairly, treated with justice. Um, and I think we get those things right. Then you see a workforce who go, yep, my employer does care about me and shows they care. Um, so th those are things that occur to me. And I'm, I pay, pay tribute to my occupational class for, for, for suggesting some of these things. Have you noticed from an organisational psychology perspective a change in, in organisations understanding that, the, that they do need to support employees more? You know, you, you mentioned, you know, I remember 20 years ago when duvet days were introduced, for example, yeah. um, and people, when, when I mentioned duvet days to friends, they, they, they laughed and said, you know, duvet days, it's just another sick day. You know, what on earth is a duvet day? <laughs> you know, the premise was around somebody could say I'm having a duvet day. There was no question about what they were doing, what was wrong with yeah. them. They would just literally have a duvet day. And it's obviously turned or changed in terminology. But have you noticed a change in the, in that psychological approach to supporting staff members in the workplace with things like that? Well, I, I think, if anything, we seem to have sadly gone the other way, haven't we? I mean, I've been talking to NHS staff um, where the idea that, you know, your COVID may have come back, for example. Uh, obviously, so many people have had it, particularly in frontline jobs. Um, and uh, it's been suggested they take that as, as um, you know, leave uh, because they've got symptoms of long COVID. Quite the opposite direction and quite the antithesis of what we'd expect of a modern uh, enlightened employer. So I think there's a bit of that going on. But some of the research that I've done around sort of uh, employers and organizations awareness of things to support the mental health and well-being of staff seems to show that there's lots of um, guidance out there from the health and safety executive the uh, national institute for health and clinical excellence for example nice um, and organizations are aware of it to varying degrees but when it comes to implementation it's quite a different story and we're seeing you know maybe 70 80 percent aware of hse guidelines to manage stress but actually implementing that could be as low as 20% in some sectors. And it seems to be more of a challenge in the private sector than in the public and, and tertiary sectors. So I'm not suggesting we, we blame anyone here for a minute, but I think making sure organisations are aware of what's on offer, that very often it doesn't cost money to introduce these things, to, you know, to, to raise awareness of supporting mental health at work, um, to actually providing some training which very often can be, um, you know, outsourced to many reputable organisations, much of it for free around mental health, shows there's a lot that could be done if we just make the space for senior leaders to consider that. And the one thing that recommendation I'd make there is based again on the research that where um, staff well-being and mental health is on the board agenda, it's there and it's discussed regularly as a matter of course, then much more likely uh, is the outcome for for you know well-being and positive mental health for staff because it's being discussed, it's given time, um, and actions are taken that will support employees. So that's one recommendation I make for organisations, uh, and the research shows there's plenty of scope for them to take that up. So um, thanks, Ashley. Um, some some really good thoughts there around um, quiet quitting and what organisations can do about it. I'd agree. It has kind of regressed a little bit in terms of how organisations are viewing it because it's such a big issue at the moment. You know, that's the kind of litmus test 
But Kate, you've you've outlined some really good advice for um, for our listeners around what you can do and um, ensuring that the mental health and well-being of staff members is put at the forefront of, of operations sometimes, if not all the time, because it's beneficial to the company as well. You know, it's it's something which is recognised that it is beneficial for everybody, for both the employee and for the employer. It'd be really interesting to see. Now there's um, indications that we're going to move away from some of the EU-driven law around working time regulations, for example. I think we've got to keep a really close eye on that because it'll be interesting to see whether if they, for example, annual leave entitlement under the working time regs is reduced under statute, whether businesses actually adopt that or not. So it's just one I wanted to make note of to keep a really close eye as to how that pans out over the next 12 months because I'm really interested to see whether people adopt it or they just ignore it completely and keep terms as they are and contractual now because that will have a massive impact on on employees if things like annual leaves, the 48-hour working week, rest breaks become less or, you know, more in the employer's favour, shall we say. So I just wanted to make that point before you wrapped up. I, I, can I second that very quickly? I, I absolutely agree with you, Kate. I think we're, we're in real danger of regressing uh, and losing some of the gains we've made from you know being in the collaboration with other countries around this where you know traditionally scandinavia uh holland uh, they've kind of led the way a bit in terms of you know good ways to treat workers um and yet we seem here to be very keen on ensuring people work longer hours but you know, without recognizing that actually that doesn't make them any more effective um, and there's a huge experiment going on at the moment featuring UK universities and I think American ones as well, looking at the four day week. And there's a whole movement there to see, well, actually, does productivity suffer at all if people work four days rather than five? So I, I, I hope we, we move in the enlightened direction. But I, I, I share your concerns, Kate, and uh, let, let's hope the listeners are uh, in their own organisations looking for the enlightened approach. I, I, I'm sure they are. Yeah, interesting times for sure. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you both. Thanks so much, Janine. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms. Just search for HR Unpacked. If you want to ask a question on a future episode of HR Unpacked, click on the link in the episode notes to ask us your questions, as well as download the free episode guide.